You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, division of endocrinology and metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. Where do SGLT2s fit in the treatment of type 2 diabetes? Joining us to discuss the benefits of SGLT2 therapy is Professor of Medicine at the Veteran Affairs Medical Center in La Jolla, California, Dr. Robert Henry. Dr. Henry, welcome to ReachMD. My pleasure to be here, Steve. Well, Bob, you know, most of our listeners have never heard about SGLT2s, which means that they're they're in development. They don't even have a marketing name yet. But I think you and I both feel it's going to be an important class in the therapy of type 2 diabetes. Let's, let's really go into the mechanism of how these drugs work, because it is quite different than anything we've ever seen before. Yeah, um, it, it's, uh, it's very important that, that folks understand that how these drugs work. Um, under normal circumstances, all of us, our, our kidneys um, filter glucose, and the kidneys reabsorb virtually 100% in non-diabetic individuals. However, when your diabetes is out of control or, or glucose levels are elevated, for example, 200 milligrams per deciliter, there's more filtered into the kidney and uh, and and at some point it exceeds the capacity uh, of the kidney to reabsorb the glucose, and glucose appears in the urine. What we now know, Steve, is that the transporters that are responsible; these are receptors on the proximal convoluted tubule. These are receptors that mediate the uptake of glucose back into the blood, and new medications have been developed to block these receptors. There are really two. SGLT2 is the major one that accounts for about 90% of the glucose reabsorption, and the other is SGLT1. Those words stand for, SGLT stands for sodium glucose cotransporter 1 and 2. So these are just receptors that um, are, are primarily responsible for bringing the glucose back from the kidney into the blood. Now, these compounds have been developed um, specifically to inhibit SGLT1 or SGLT2 or both. And the ones that are currently um, most significantly advanced in the development are the SGLT2 inhibitors. So basically, we are preventing the kidney from reabsorbing glucose that goes back into the into the bloodstream and event so this is one of these drugs where if you measure glycosuria it's a good thing yeah in fact it goes up quite significantly let me tell you that these inhibitors don't completely block the receptors the SGLT2 receptor they lead on average to about 50% inhibition at least that's the estimated inhibition. There may be some that are more potent or less potent that may get 30 to 70% inhibition, but it's not complete inhibition. It's only partial and leads on average to excretion in a diabetic on average, an uncontrolled diabetic with an A1C of about 8%, leading to daily glucose in the urine of 50 to perhaps as high as 100 grams per day. It's kind of interesting that the the studies that have been done don't show that these people go to the washroom a lot. In fact, it's it's only a minor increase in uh, in in uh, polyuria 
one or two increased times per day, and an average of about five or 600 milliliters of urine increased with these. So it's not really a bothersome issue. I would imagine it would determine what the ambient glucose level is. Well, let's talk about the benefits. There have been lots of clinical trials now and increasing. Give us a, a summary of what kind of benefits they've seen in people with type 2 diabetes. Well, the, um, there's reductions in both fasting plasma glucose, postprandial glucose, and postprandial glucose it should be more because these drugs, uh, if they, they work better when they, the higher the glucose level. And, of course, postprandial is usually... Um, higher, not always, but um, they so they get reductions in both fasting and postprandial, and they they get obviously reductions in A1C of about 0.6 to 0.8 percent, starting with an A1C of about eight, um, and reductions in in um, fasting of about 30 and postprandial of about 50 or 60 milligrams per deciliter uh, mean changes, uh, and as well the nice part is because they're putting glucose in the urine, and glucose is energy. As, as you well know, each gram of, of glucose is about 4.1 calories. So if you put out 50 grams a day of glucose, you're putting out 200, about 200 calories uh, in the urine. And so it's associated with weight loss. And much of the weight loss can be accounted for by the loss of glucose in the urine. It sounds like the benefits similar to the uh, DPP-4 inhibitors, but with the weight loss. What about any cardiovascular risks? Well, there's none known yet. However, these compounds aren't far enough. In order for one to today, with the low event rates of cardiovascular disease and diabetes, probably need a minimum of 3,000 patients in, in phase three clinical trials to be able to get enough events to be able to have confidence that they don't have any cardiovascular events, but there's no signals of any kind that I'm aware of, at least in the drugs in current development, that there should be any change in cardiovascular risk. So my, my although I, I don't know, my estimate would be that there's no signal right now and there should be, you know, we'll find out only after uh, the phase three clinical trials are completed, completed and, and meta-analyses are done on that data. Yeah, and we've had previous shows talking about the whole requirement regarding cardiovascular risks. Um, what about effects on bone stability? Yeah, again, there is no signals yet, but for me, uh, that is what I would um, have my one of my greatest long-term concerns. Uh, in other words, over five or ten years probably. And only because uh, we know that the kidney is so intricately involved in in bone metabolism, and um, there are and there has been shown to be changes in magnesium absorption. Usually, magnesium uh, excretion is altered and increased uh, increased reabsorption with with these agents. Um, as, as yet, no real evidence of calcium excretion or changes in parathyroid hormone. Uh, that have been reported, but I think that that's something that's going to have to be looked at fairly carefully. If I was developing this compound, I would make sure that we don't have any uh, long-term effects on bone. And how quickly they would show if they were there, um, well, I think now with, with you know good bone density measurements, you can probably pick it up at six months or a year, but certainly they need to look at five years and further in the, if they get to market and, and uh, then they need to do this in the post-marketing period. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Robert Henry. 
We are discussing the benefits of a new class of agents, SGLT2s, for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. Well, Bob, you know, I think messing with the exchange of glucose in the kidneys, as you mentioned a little earlier, may have effects on bone uh, minerals and things like that. What what are some other potential fi- side effects? Do Are women getting more urinary tract infections, genital infections? Yeah, now the problem with that is that um, the incidence of genital infections, vulvovaginitis, uh, and even in males, balanitis from from uh, mainly candida, but other fungi as well, uh, is increased in in the diabetic population. It does appear uh, that there may be a slight increase uh, in individuals who are on these agents, and that makes sense uh, because there's increased glucose in the urine. However, it's very small increase if it's there. It's not a, a serious side effect, and it's very easy to treat. So I don't think that's going to be uh, a game stopper in any way. It, it uh, one will have to look for it and treat accordingly. But I mean, clearly the the incidence of of vulvovaginitis, balanitis is underdiagnosed in people with diabetes. Treated over the counter with over over the counter medications frequently. So again, I. I I do believe it'll be slightly increased, but not a major problem. I think the question is, is urinary tract infection increased? And that is not clear. Uh, and then obviously we'll have to be searched for um, very carefully. But that, that is a little bit more of a problem because what, that could lead to cystitis and, and even um, uh, pyelonephritis if it, uh, if it got severe. So that would be something to look for. But again, the signals are very weak right now. But then again, the studies are only six months or so in duration. What are the potential uses in type 1 diabetes? As you know, uh, I've had type 1 since age 15, and uh, we're always looking for non-insulin type of therapies that may help improve our control. Well, I mean, I should say this for both type 1 and type 2, is that these compounds can be added to virtually any other therapy because they work by a completely unique mechanism of action. And so they can be added in type 2s to any form of therapy, including insulin, and they uh, appear to work quite well in type 1 diabetics. This is, I think, a pretty exciting area. You know, individuals with type 1 diabetes have only really insulin and premolentide uh, that they can use, and this is another different form of therapy that could really be an addition, uh, you know, um, an additional um, effort to try and treat the hyperglycemia that occurs, and particularly because many of the the problems with with type 1 diabetes is the postprandial control. And again, these drugs work very effectively in the postprandial period. Yeah, that that's exciting. Hey, uh, is this a pill? Is it injectable? No, it's a pill once a day. It looks like once a day. Uh, now, some of them that may be coming down the pike might be twice, but right now that the several that are under development are once-a-day medications, um, easy to take, no major known um, uh, adverse events in the in the trial so far. Again, there's a long, uh, quite a ways to go, but but things look pretty good right now. Wow. What about some of the new uh, or upcoming phase two and phase three trials for this class? Anything exciting? Anything different? Yeah. Well, I think that there's the one thing is that they're looking at now in some of the new uh, medications are drugs that inhibit both type uh, both SGLT2 and to a lesser extent, SGLT1. You don't want to inhibit too much SGLT1 because that's the major glucose and galactose transporter in the gastrointestinal tract. So you don't want to inhibit it too much, but a small inhibition of SGLT1 
as well as SGLT2 could give you added value in terms of a little bit more glycosuria and some inhibition, perhaps, of glucose from the gastrointestinal tract. But that remains to be determined. Uh, that's right now only conjecture. But I think that that's uh, one of the thought processes is going on. Well, it, it comes down to drug development and trying to manipulate molecules that do exactly what you want and don't do what you don't want. We'd like to thank our guest, Professor of Medicine at the Veteran Affairs Medical Center in La Jolla, California, Dr. Robert Henry. Dr. Henry, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. My pleasure, Steve. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. July 10th. My lecture tour is going well. While the days have not been too tiring, I do worry for Marie and her diabetes. Dr. Hayedorn mentioned that her blood sugar was above normal right before we left. I hope we can find some answers while we are here. In 1922, Novo Nordisk's founder, Nobel Prize-winning scientist August Crow, and his wife and fellow scientist Marie made a fateful visit to America to further their research and build relationships with doctors working on the earliest treatments for diabetes. July 28th. We keep hearing of this new medication that replaces the insulin that people with diabetes no longer make on their own. People who treat their diabetes can live longer and healthier lives. This could be what we've been searching for. Upon learning about the work being done at the University of Toronto, August and Marie headed north to make a connection that would change the face of diabetes treatment forever. August 11th, Dr. Hayedorn, as I believe you will be interested from both a theoretical and practical point of view, I have persuaded my husband to write to Dr. McLeod in Toronto and ask to obtain its method of manufacture so you can perform experiments with insulin in Denmark. November the 1st, success. We have replicated the process here in Kermhaun and will be administering the first batches of insulin to patients by week's end. This could be the moment when we finally get control over Marie's diabetes and help so many others. From our first patient to our latest innovation, Novo Nordisk has been a world leader in diabetes care for nearly a century. Our patient-centric philosophy has led to many breakthroughs, including insulin analogs and easy-to-use delivery devices and a global commitment to advancing research, education, and partnership. And our mission is the same today as it was back then, to defeat diabetes. Visit us at novonordisk-us.com.